0: You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Well, I'm very excited tonight to start this book with you. Uh, uh, as, we, as we dive into this book, uh, I believe that the Lord is going to take all of us on a journey, in a journey that we will be, be better able to understand ourselves and better able to understand our own personal need for Jesus. You see, that book of Hebrews is really a snapshot of the human soul, of what happens in the human soul when there is no king. And we'll, get, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But first of all, the, word, the Hebrew word for this book is the, is the word shofet. And Shofet means, or it's a term that carries meanings of Savior and Mediator. And so right off the bat, in the name of the book, Shofet, we already are being pointed to Jesus. If the book of Judges is a snapshot of the human soul without a king, the very name of the book reminds us of our personal need, the greatest personal need that you or I have face or have in this life is a need for king jesus the book of judges reminds us or or, or it points us to him in many different ways the book of judges is a book about the nation of israel's struggle to walk with god and anybody that has a struggle to walk with god is going to be able to relate to the lessons in this book Remember now that Israel is a very special nation in the scheme of the nations of the world. They were called by God to be a nation of priests whose king was God himself. And yet we see, as with all other humanity, when Israel got comfortable, they began to forget things that were important. They began to forget about their king. That was supposed to be God himself who led them. Now, as Israel neglected God's word, it led them into forgetting God's truths, which in turn led to drifting away from God's will. Listen, if you're here tonight, paying attention, listening, know this. So many times a departure from God's will in our lives is not some, is not the result of some, you know, big dramatic Thing in our lives, but rather it is the, 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 the small, tiny act of neglecting God's Word, neglecting to be in the Word, neglecting to be a student of the Word, neglecting to allow the Word into our hearts and apply it in our lives. Israel neglected God's words; It led to forgetting God's truth and departing from God's will. The book really is a cycle. It is a cycle that begins with sin, and then moves to suffering, and then uh, brings them into slavery. And then they will, the people will cry out in supplication, asking the Lord for help. And then it ends with the Lord saving them or salvation from God. God will raise up a deliverer for his people. So that cycle is all throughout the book of Judges. We'll see it over and over again. The people sin. Then they suffer because of the sin in their lives. And that suffering leads them into a place of weakness where they become slaves of other people that God raises up to oppress them in order to bring them back. And then they will cry out, God save us. And God uh, raises up that deliverer for them. And that's over and over again throughout the book of Judges. You know, if we were to summarize the theme of the book of Judges with one sentence, it would be this. Where there is no king, there is no peace. Where there is no king, there is no peace. And that's true for you and me as well. Where, Where King Jesus is not sitting on the throne of our hearts, we're not going to find peace in our lives. And you know, there are so many things pulling for our attention, pulling for our priorities in the world, seeking to disrupt the peace that God desires for you and me. The theme verse of the book of Judges is Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It'll be on the screen. But it says that in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You know, In many ways, the book of Judges is not unlike the time period that we live in today. You see, we live in a time that is known as postmodern time. Actually, we might even be past postmodern by this point. There are many that believe that we're already past postmodernism as well. But what does postmodern even mean? Well, to understand postmodern, we have to understand first what is meant by the term modernism the period of time before what we're living in now. Modernism was the belief that reason, the human intellect, our intellectual powers, had the that our reason had the power to make sense out of the world. And, and during the times of modernism, the belief that absolute truth still existed was still part of mainstream thought. Hey, there there is absolute truth, and by absolute truth I mean things that are absolutely true in all places, for all people, for all time. In modernism, that, that thought was still there. But now, postmodernism is the idea that reason has failed to make sense out of the world. Human intellectual power is not made sense out of the world, and, and so therefore they've moved on from that. Postmodernism says, you know, theoretically speaking, it says there's no longer any independent standard of right and wrong, of truth or falsehood. In other words, truth is relative to whatever your experience tells you is true. Erwin Lutzer, writing in his book that's called Who Are You to Judge, he says this about postmodernism. He says, truth, if it exists at all, does not exist out there to be discovered, but rather is simply my own personal response to the data that is presented to me. I do not discover truth. I am the source of truth. Interesting there, isn't that? We don't go out and discover truth as as something that exists to be discovered, but rather we interpret the truth for ourselves based on the data that's given to us, our own experience, so that's the difference between modernism and postmodern times, which is what we're living in now. And really, that's a perfect summary of how many people today live their lives, isn't it? And it's also a perfect description of what was happening in the book of Judges. The Bible is a great look into the experiment of humanity. And if we pay attention to it, we can learn a lot about ourselves. You see, many modern men today think, hey, we're living in a time when I decide what's good and right for me, and you decide what's good and right for you. Well, guess what? That already happened in in history. There was a whole nation that lived their lives by that concept. In the book of Judges, we see it. Every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. And we're going to see the destruction that that brings You know, the philosopher George Santayana was right when he said this. He said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Guess what? We're repeating it right now in America, the United States of America. Listen to these headlines, for example. Family feud leaves 69 brothers dead Powerful government leader caught in a love net. (laughs) Sounds like something we just recently have read about in the news. Gang rape leaves a victim dead, cut in pieces, and mailed around the country. Kind of sounds like maybe some news headlines we'd see on the Drudge Report, or Fox News, perhaps, or CNN. But all of those headlines actually come right out of the book of Judges. There's stories that we're going to be studying in these pages on Wednesday nights. And what we want to study in this book though, what we want to extract from this study is why are these things happening and how can we apply God's truth to our life in order to avoid it to break this cycle, the cycle of sin, suffering, slavery, supplication and then salvation. How can we get ourselves extracted from that cycle? We want to know the God of Israel, our God, better and better. And, and, and as we do that, as we see him, we're going to learn to love him. Because we see his mercy, we see his deliverance, we see his grace over and over and over again. And guess what? That's going to hopefully motivate you and me to be more like God, to be more like Jesus, our deliverer. The author of this book was most likely Samuel. Uh, that's, that's the that's probably the evidence points to suggests that it was Samuel. He was one of the last judges of Israel, and the, the you know the, for the date of the book for the when it was written and all of that. There's there's debate about exactly. I'm sorry, not not when it was written, but the events of the book themselves. There's actually debate about how exactly how many years the book of Judges covers. Uh, used to be that, you know, people say that, you know, if you total up all the years of the judges that are listed there, it would come to about, uh, about 400 years or so. But uh, we've realized that that's probably not correct. It can't be correct, in fact, because if you uh, look at when historically the evidence for the conquest of Israel begins, that began in about 1230 B.C., and Saul... The very first king of Israel was crowned king in about 1020 BC, and so you have to sandwich the period of judges between the conquest. The historical evidence, the archaeological evidence, points to that being the time of the conquest, 1230, and after that, because uh, they've they've actually in, in their in their archaeological digs there in Israel, they have found evidence that many of the cities in that region were destroyed all in that same time frame. All of these Canaanite cities destroyed in the same time frame. And so we know, as we study the Old Testament, that fits with uh, what, what the Bible tells us happened in the book of Joshua, right? The conquest of the land. So beginning there, 1230 BC, and then between the, the, the time that Saul was crowned as king, which is 1020 BC, so you're looking at uh, basically 180 to 210 years in which these events are probably taking place. The book can be broken down into three main sections. The very first section is just chapters 1 and 2, and that is a summary of what happens after Joshua's death. Summary of you know the things that you know, Josh, after Joshua passed away, and uh, uh, there's, there's some things that are um, uh, synonymously happening in, in the book of Joshua. So it's just a little bit of a summary of what happens before the period of the Judges. The second section of the book is the, actually the administration of the judges. And it's in, in this time, that'll be chapters 3, all the way through to, towards the end their last uh, all the way through to, to chapter uh, 20, two, 23. And, and, and that will be actually uh, talking about 13 different judges. Now, seven of those leaders are the main figures in the book, and there's six other judges that are mentioned kind of briefly on the side. So 13 total, but only seven of them are actually main stories in this book. And then the last part of the, the book is just the last couple of chapters, and that talks about the narrative of the problems that their apostasy has created. So it, it, the, the last couple of chapters is just a summary of what happens in a nation that walks away from the Lord. And it's going to get ugly. It's going to be pretty crazy. But we'll get into that, you know, later on. So that covers our introduction. I want to get into chapter 1 tonight. I want to see how far we're able to get into it in the time that's allotted. But let's start off there in verse 1 of Judges chapter 1. And this is all about Judah's success. So it says, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. Now, uh, you might be asking, well, how did they hear from the Lord? They didn't have Moses, they didn't have Joshua. Normally, the pattern is God would speak to them, and then they would speak to the people. Well, we know that Moses is dead, Joshua is also dead. And, and so, how are they hearing from the Lord? Well, this would have been done using the ephod of the high priest, along with the umim and the thumim. Uh, th- those were kind of, the, from what we can derive, they were stones that Israel's high priest would basically use to discern what the will of the Lord was for different occasions in their lives, for different situations. I don't, we don't know exactly, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how those stones, uh, worked or communicated to the high priest. But it was likely similar to casting lots or or even rolling dice, okay? So there was this sort of a a casting of these stones, and the stones would communicate somehow there to the high priest what God's will was. But, uh, you know, this is is something that uh, we have to, to realize for us sounds ridiculous. But for the Israelites, this was something that they believed. This was how God... Uh, directed their way. And that's what the Word tells us, that God directed their path through this. Now today, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit operates as our umim and our thumim. You know, God has given us the Spirit living and dwelling in us, and He is able to speak to our hearts, both through God's Word, the Bible, as we read it and as we pray and meditate upon it, but also through His voice speaking in our conscience and leading us with different impulses in our lives. He, he impl- impresses things on our heart from time to time. And that's how the Holy Spirit works in, in our lives today. But, but back then, this was how Israel operated. It was totally acceptable in their culture. And, and this is how they did things. Uh, consider with me Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 for a moment. It'll be on the screen. Well, that verse says that the lot is cast into the lap but its very decision is from the Lord. There you see from King Solomon writing about the very casting of the lots being a decision that comes from the Lord. So they saw this as as the Lord leading them. Now, in this case, the stones directed or indicated that God's will was for Judah to be the first ones to go out and to claim their territory. Now, interesting note here. Judah actually means celebrated, and it can also mean praise. Uh, when when Judah was born, his mother said, I will praise the Lord. And and, and it's a root form of the word Yehuda, which is his name, and, and it means to praise the Lord. So isn't it interesting here that the tribe whose namesake is, I will praise the Lord, they're the first ones that are called to go up and to fight against the enemy. I think that's very interesting, and here's why. I believe that this is indicating to us that praising God and worshiping God is a powerful weapon in our hearts against the enemy. You know, when we are under attack, when the spiritual war comes against us, the first thing that we need to do is we need to praise God. We need to take a time out. We need to put on some praise and worship music and praise the Lord. Because in praising God, the enemy can't stand it. The enemy is going to flee from that. The enemy can't stand the presence of a worshiping heart, someone who's yielded to God and saying, God, I want your will first in my life. Now getting back into Judges chapter 1, verse 3, it says, So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. And then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they killed 10,000 men at Bezek, and they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him, and cut him, or caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Interesting, huh? (laughs) It just seems kind of random, you know? Cut off his... What in the world, you know? But here, verse 7 gives the context. Adonai Adonai Bizzak said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And then they brought him to Jerusalem. There he died. So Adonai Bizzak had a problem. (laughs) He had a weird uh, fetish, I I guess you might say, about cutting people's thumbs (laughs) and big toes off. (laughs) I don't know what it was, but... He was just a big bully, apparently. Well, you know what happens to bullies? It comes right back around on them, doesn't it? That's what happens. Jesus said, hey, you want to live by the sword? You'll die by the sword, too. You know, something i found in my life is that no matter how hard I worked out or how big I got in the gym, there was always somebody much bigger than I was, you know? There's always somebody out there that's bigger than you are. And so, you know, it's going to come around. What which, which you dish out is going to come around. That's the lesson here with Adonai Bezek. Um, as you could see, uh, you know, and, and, you know, let me back up a minute there. But in, in those verses, you see Judah who teams up with his brother Simeon. They're fighting together. And that actually made sense geographically. If you look at the, 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 the map of the land that they inherited, uh, Simeon's allotted land was actually inside of Judah's land. And so, eventually, as history went on, Simeon actually kind of lost their identity as a tribe because they were basically absorbed into the tribe of Judah. And that's what happened uh, to Simeon. Their, their, their identity as a tribe kind of faded away. Now, this Adonai Zedek character here, he's not to be confused with Adonai Zedek, who, if you remember, in the book of Joshua, we read about him in Joshua chapter ten. Uh, he was the he was the band leader of a whole bunch of Canaanite kings that came against Israel. That came against Joshua. They defeated him. This guy is another guy, Adonibezek. He was a bad character, like I talked about. He mutilated his his victims. Why did he cut off their thumbs and big toes? Um, actually, it's a very practical reason. It's probably because he didn't want them to ever be able to take up a weapon against him. If you think about it. You know, you don't have that opposing thumb. It's hard to grip a sword or a spear or any kind of a weapon. And if you cut off the big toe, you don't have balance anymore. You can't really, uh, you can't really be a warrior without a big toe and, and your thumbs. So that was the reason that he did that. But the, the Israelites applied lex talionis. We've talked about this here on Wednesday nights. That's the law of retaliation. And, and it's best known in the book of, uh, of uh, Exodus an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. And that was how they repaid him in kind. Now, people today, you and I, we we might look at this and we might go, man, brutal, cruel, you know, how how could God sanction this kind of behavior, you know? But again, we can't make the mistake. I remind you guys, don't make the mistake of reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, through the lens of your life today. You can't take your values and your life and your culture and impress it upon the word of God, you have to realize, hey, this was written in its own time, in its own context, and it's just reporting the facts as they happened in much different times. Now as Christians today, we remember that God has appointed the government to be the entity that enforces justice. we don't take that into our own hands today. Uh, And and we're, we're actually to be about the business of promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus taught. Jesus said, hey, if your enemy comes against you and, and does evil, hey, you're not, to, you're not to do the same thing back to him. But he says, rather, you're to, you're to allow your life to be a witness of God's love and how God has changed your life. And that's what Jesus wants us to be all about. Picking it up there in verse 8, back in Judges 1, says, now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem, and they took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Note with me here for a moment in verse 8 that they took Jerusalem, but it appears that they left it unoccupied afterwards because later on in verse 21 in the same chapter, it's going to appear again as as a stronghold city of the Jebusites. Let's We'll, we'll get more on that later. Verse 9 says, Afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba. And they killed Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. And from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kirjath Sefer. Then Caleb said, whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Asa as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter, Aksa, as wife. Now it happened that when she came to him, that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land in the south, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Just pause there for a moment. I'm not going to comment much on that, uh, if you were with us through the book of Joshua, you know we, we covered that story. Uh, we've, you know, the same story was mentioned in Joshua chapter 15. But, but just just be encouraged by Exa there. I love her heart. Um, she's not afraid to go to her father and ask. And in that, you know, as I shared in Joshua chapter 15, she's really a type or a picture of what the believer is supposed to be like with our Heavenly Father. We we shouldn't be afraid to to go to him and to ask him for those blessings in our own lives. He loves to give good things to his kids. Uh, that's our heavenly Father. He just loves to bless us. And in fact, he, there's a promise in Psalm 84, uh, verse 10, that says, "There's no good thing that he'll withhold from those who walk uprightly." Now, of course, that promise is conditioned on our behavior. Right? We have to we have to be walking uprightly. But man, it's the Lord's good favor. It's his good pleasure, I mean, to bless you with good things as you are living for him. And uh, we have to trust that his timing is right and that, that he knows exactly what is a good thing. Because sometimes what I think is a good thing and what you think is a good thing could actually be detrimental to our faith, to our walk with the Lord. But he knows. He knows what's good, and he has the right time for everything. Picking it back up in verse 16. Judges chapter 1 says, Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. And also, Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah and they drove out the mountaineers because they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And I just want to pause really quickly right there and say that, uh, you know, the, you know, these chariots of iron uh, they were advanced warfare, and Israel at this stage in their history, they hadn't developed these kind of weapons yet. They hadn't really; they, they were still living in the age before the Iron Age, and and their technology and stuff. And and interestingly enough, um, when we were over in Israel, we actually got to see, uh, you know, a lot of the valleys where the Philistines and their armies would have lived, and and we saw how these valleys and these plains were pushed right up against these mountain ranges and the Israelites were living up in the mountains where they could defend themselves. And, and, and whenever they would come down onto the plains, it was like unequal warfare because of the chariots, because of the technology uh, that they had developed. And these chariots, you know, were powerful weapons. The Israelites couldn't really stand against them. Uh, and so when you're over there, you see how the geography t- plays into this as well. Chariots can't go in mountains. So the Israelites were safe up there. But if they had any settlements down in the plains, well, that was where they ran into trouble because of these chariots of iron. Verse 20, and they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had said, then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak, but the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who had inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So interesting, because back earlier we saw that, hey, the, the tribe of Judah and Simeon, they came and they... They captured this. They took the city of Jerusalem. They burned it with fire. But apparently they abandoned it or left it. And the enemy came right back into that territory, reclaimed it, and built it up as a stronghold. And then Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, they couldn't drive them out anymore. And so the Jebusites we see there dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Kind of interesting, isn't it? The city of David that David had to work so hard to conquer... With his army, was, could have been theirs from the very beginning had Judah just stationed an outpost there, you know, stationed a group of guards or something uh, to, to keep that. Uh, so, kind of an interesting little, little side note there. But I want to point out something else. As you can see, up to about verse 21 here, things are going really well in the conqu- conquest of the land, especially for the tribes of Judah and Simeon. But here in verse 21, notice that marked change. It mentions there that Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Now, the writer of the book of Judges is purposefully transitioning from verse 21. He begins to transition through the rest of the chapter, and he begins to share some of the bad news about the conquest. And this is where you're really going to see a purposeful transitioning to, to uh, where he's going to be pointing out the deterioration of the conquest for the rest of the chapter. And that's the last part, starting in verse 22. We'll pick it up, it says, And the house of Josephus also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. And uh, some people have wondered, well, why was it called Bethel before uh, you know, before the uh, the the, the uh, Israelites were there, and uh, you know, of course, we know that uh, uh, the Canaanite deity, or well, they had a pantheon of gods, but the father of the pantheon of gods, they called him El, and so that's that's one of the that's the reason that this place was already named Bethel, the House of God, in verse twenty three. We read here, so the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called his name Luz, which is what its name is to this day. By the way, there's been no archaeological evidence yet of a city that was named Luz in, the, in that region of uh, Syria there to the north. But, uh, you know, that doesn't mean, again, uh, when we were over in Israel, our guide kept saying this. He kept saying, everywhere you throw a falafel ball, you discover you're going to hit an archaeological site, <laughs> basically. And so just because that city hasn't been discovered yet doesn't mean that it didn't exist. A lot of stuff that is is written in the Bible uh, has uh, you know gone through testing periods where it wasn't discovered, so they, they question whether or not it was real, but so much of it has been discovered as time goes on. Verse 26 or verse 27, I'm sorry. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass that when Israel was strong, that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them, nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Let's pause right here for a moment. Notice that word, however, back in verse 27. That word marks a purposeful transition, again, from good to bad, to worse within the narrative in the chapter. The writer of Judges is chronicling for us the deterioration of this conquest by the Israelites. Also, notice in verse 27, it says that the Canaanites were determined to live in the land. If you like to highlight your Bible or underline, I I would underline that phrase right there. That's a significant phrase. And, And that's an appropriate commentary as to what our enemies seek to do in our lives who is our enemies Christians we know this we have three main enemies in life the very first one is me myself and I my very own flesh I am my own worst enemy it's sad but true (laughs) the second enemy that we all have together is the world you see the system of the world has an agenda and that agenda is anti-christ it is against Jesus Christ And and therefore, it is filled with, uh, 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 it is moving in a direction that is not the direction that we as Christians desire to go. And then the third enemy of our soul is, of course, Satan. Satan and and the demons. And you know what? That's what they desire to do in your life. They are determined to get themselves a finger hold, a toe hold, a stronghold, and move in and dwell in the land, so to speak. In your own heart. You know, as time goes on, the Israelites become less and less inclined to fight the enemy. And so guess what? They find themselves making compromises with their enemy in certain areas. And we'll see that that's that's exactly what we do. That's exactly how our human heart works, isn't it? But let's continue to follow the deterioration in verse 31. Verse 31 says, Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Alab, or Aqzeb, Helba, Iphek, or Rehob. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing them right, but it sounds good, doesn't it? I just do it with a Spanish, you know, pronunciation. That's <laughs> all I do. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. A, a bad Spanish accent, I should say pronunciation. Verse 33, nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Did you see that right there? Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them, and the Canaan and the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Sha'albim. But what? Or yet, when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Verse thirty-six. Let's finish it up. Now, the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim. Uh, from Selah and upward. So that's the end of the chapter. But, but did you notice the progression in that chapter? Did you notice, or, or should I say, the digression in that chapter? We started out in verse 21, and it said that the Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites. Then we moved on to where the Canaanites dwelt among them in verse 30. And next, we see that it's gotten to the point where Asher, look in verse 33, he's now dwelling with the Canaanites. So it's not the Canaanites dwelling among Israel. It now becomes Israel actually just dwelling with the enemy. The enemy's got them outnumbered in, in the land of Asher. And then you get down to, to verse, uh, where is it, verse 34. It says that the Amorites are actually forcing the children of Dan to live where they want them to live. Isn't that a perfect picture of how the enemy works in the life of a believer? It all starts, it all starts when we make a compromise with the enemy, whether that's our flesh, whether it's the world, or whether it's the temptations of, the, of Satan himself. But listen, it all starts when we make a compromise to indulge our flesh in some way. You know, I'm the king at justifying those indulgences to my flesh. Well, it's been a really long day. Well, I've been working so hard this week. I deserve this. Well, you know, maybe no one's going to know about this anyways. We are kings at being able to justify indulgences to our flesh. But soon that indulgence becomes a permanent fixture in our lives. It becomes something permanent. It becomes the source of which there is much temptation and much struggle. And and, and the stumbling that takes place happens more and more frequently because we've made that compromise with the enemy. And if we leave that alone and we don't do anything about it, then over time we find that compromise grows and it spreads to other areas in our life. It's kind of like a cancer And then one day we wake up and we realize, wow, I've been surrounded and even cut off by my sin. I'm no longer in control here. My sin is actually forcing me to do things that I don't want to do. That's the picture of what the enemy wants to do in your life. That's what your flesh, that's what the world, and that's what Satan are determined to do. We are dwelling with the enemy right now. The enemy is seeking to find a place in our hearts. He's seeking to divide us from the things of the Lord. He wants us to neglect the Word of God. He wants us to just give up on Wednesday night Bible studies and Tuesday night discipleship and Sunday morning church. He wants us to just hit the or snooze button and, and sleep in and not get in the Word in the morning before we start our day. He loves nothing more than to get Christians to begin to neglect God's Word because that's where we begin to forget God's truth. And when we forget God's truth, the identity of who we are in Jesus Christ, man, it, only gets, it goes from bad to worse. And then the next thing we know, we find ourselves deviating from God's path for our lives. We get off that, that path that He has for us. And you know what? There's only uh, one thing that we can do at that point to get us back on. We need to do what the children of Israel do, and that's cry out to God. We need to say, Lord, I've, <laughs> I've gotten astray here. I thought I had it under control, Lord, but now I'm being enslaved. What do we need to do? What's the life lesson that we can take home tonight from Judges chapter 1? I'll close with this. We need to surrender our lives completely to God. We need to trust Him all the way. Not allowing ourselves to get comfortable with the enemy. We, We wouldn't allow a snake to sleep in the crib with our baby. We wouldn't Uh, you know, we wouldn't do something that would put the, the lives of our children in jeopardy as parents. Why would we do something like that with our own spiritual life then? Why would we allow ourselves to be comfortable with the enemy? Compromise with the flesh will eventually lead us into corruption. What are the areas in your life that you're indulging your flesh in right now? Think about that. Allow the Holy Spirit to just Reveal something to you that's an area of your flesh that you're just indulging in and and justifying and letting it kind of go on and on. Hey, if he's pointing anything out to you tonight, hey, know this, that will eventually lead you into corruption. So, So nip it in the bud. Right now, just just make a, a a pact between you and the Lord, Lord. When I get home, I'm going to dump that out, or I'm going to turn that off, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that, or I'm going to I'm going to you know I'm going to make a change, and, and make that change something that is uh, uh, practical, something that you know you can accomplish, and if you can't do it on your own, enlist some help. Talk to your parents, talk to your, uh, your, your, your best friend, talk to your husband or your wife, whoever it needs to be, but bring somebody in and get some accountability for that area that you're indulging in. And then take some measurable steps to cut that out. That's how we're gonna defeat the enemy in our lives. So are you going for it with God tonight? Are you putting Him first? Are you charging for the Lord? You know, when I was in uh, uh, Costa Rica and surfed a lot, we used to uh, go out in in the storm waves. That was the biggest waves that came in on the coast there of Costa Rica. And you know what you had to do sometimes? You know, there was a a place there in Flamingo, and it was a break uh, right over some rocks, a, a reef break. And the water would suck back from those rocks and they would kind of come exposed or be right below the surface. But that was right where you had to catch the wave. And so when you were out there with those guys, you had to make up your mind. You had to say, you know what, <laughs> I'm going for it. You would begin to paddle and that wave would just pick you up. And then there, there came a point where it's like you were either all in or you were going to be cheese grated on those rocks. And you just had to you had to go for it. And I think sometimes we as Christians, we need to make that choice in our lives with God. We need to realize, hey, i got one life to live. And in the spectrum of eternity, it is so small. And I need to go for this. And, and here comes that wave. Here comes that trial. Here comes that storm. I'm all in, God. I'm going for this. It's you're going to get me through this or, or, no, or nothing, <laughs> or I just die. And we need to take that step and go for it with the Lord. That's how we defeat the enemy in our lives. In a practical standpoint, in a practical way, the the Word of God tells us how to do that, how to defeat the enemy in our lives. And and in closing, I want to give you three things from Romans chapter 6. If you'll turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 6 tonight. And I'm just going to read these verses and just make a couple of comments. Romans chapter 6, this is how the Bible tells us to defeat the enemy in our lives. Romans chapter 6, the first thing that we need to do is we need to remember our new life in Christ. We have a new life in Jesus. He's He's given us that. Look at Romans 6, 1 through 4. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus or into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Hey, we died to the old life, and we've been raised again in Christ Jesus to a new life. So remember that. Secondly, reckon the old man to be dead to sin. That's verses 5 through 11. It says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, that means to identify with Jesus that he died for you, and you died with him there, certainly then we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Amen. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the second thing in in order to defeat the enemy in our lives. We need to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to the Lord. Reckon, it just means to live like something is true. You know the facts? Hey, you're dead to sin. Jesus and you, you identified with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So therefore, you know that's true. You're not alive to sin anymore. You're no longer a slave to sin. In verse 12, the last thing is to present yourself to God and serve him. And That's how we defeat the enemy. Verse 12 to to verse 14 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. Praise the Lord. Jesus Christ sets us free so that we are no longer dominated by sin, but rather we are supposed to remember that new life, reckon ourselves dead to sin, and present ourselves to God to serve. We serve Him by serving others. Hey, if we're not serving, guys, hey, we're, we're, we're eventually going to digress. We need to find ways to present ourselves to the Lord and to serve Him. Amen? Let's pray.